0: Ha <laughs> ha I'm Danielle Yett, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. We gather friends and members of our ICS community here to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. Lisa
1: semester we're tackling some big questions. We're asking our guests to talk about the themes of evil, resistance, and judgment as they come up in their course of their work, their studies, and their lives. I'm Hector Acero, and I'm also a junior member at ICS. Today, we're talking to Tyler Wick-Stevenson, founder of the Two Futures Project for the Evolution of Nuclear Weapons, and current scholar in residence at Little Trinity Anglican Church here in Toronto. We'll welcome Tyler to the podcast in a minute. For our second segment, we at ICS are reckoning with the problem of evil, exploring possible modes of resistance, and discerning moments of judgment as a community. So we are asking our guests to talk about how these issues intersect with their work and lives. Today, we are joined by Tyler Wick-Stevenson. A few years ago, Tyler founded the Two Futures Project for the Evolution of Nuclear Weapons, and has worked extensively with Christian activist groups. Currently, Tyler is pursuing his PhD at Wycliffe College and serves as Scholar-in-Residence at Little Trinity Anglican Church here in Toronto. So welcome, Tyler. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here with you guys. So for our first section, we um, would like to ask you some biographical questions. We want you to tell us uh, where you come from. We know you here at ICS, you've taken a number of courses with us, um, your friends with our senior members, junior members. So um, just tell us a bit about yourself, what you're engaging in, both academically and um, activist-wise.
2: Well, thanks. Um, yeah, so you mentioned in the introduction that I founded an organization called the Two Futures Project, and um, principally in my work in advocacy and activism, um, it has been on the question of nuclear disarmament, the abolition of nuclear weapons. That's a um, where I've spent the bulk of my adult career outside of the church. Really, I'm a, a two-trick pony. All I know is uh, the church and nuclear disarmament, and <laughs> confronted with much else, I'm, I'm pretty much useless. Um, the The way I came to both of those, uh, both of those, nuclear disarmament as an issue, and the church, though, was a bit surprising where, given where I come from. So I grew up in uh, Southern California, um, I should say at the outset, uh, my activist context is an American one, and I know a, a majority of the listeners here will be, be Canadian, but hopefully some of this stuff will, will translate across borders. Um, so I came from Southern California. I didn't grow up as a Christian, didn't grow up in the church at all. Um, and fast forward to my first job after university, where I was working for a, a former U.S. senator in my home state of California, Alan Cranston. Um, who dedicated his retirement to the elimination of nuclear weapons. And I worked for him at an organization called the Global Security Institute. And it was a, a rather random connection that led me to Senator Cranston, not a previously existing commitment to the elimination of nuclear weapons, although coincidentally that had been a passion of my parents during my, during my childhood in the 1980s. Um, so I, I landed in that somewhat by, by chance, or now I would say by providence, And it was there too that I had my conversion experience, which was an encounter with God when I was 22 years old. um, That changed the direction of my life. I was in seminary a year and a half later um, and uh, proceeded accordingly. Um, When doing all this very quickly, to make a long story short, when I graduated um, seminary after a couple of years, I was an ordained Baptist pastor, but we moved to Nashville for my wife's PhD And I was a Baptist from New England, and a Baptist from New England has a hard time finding a job in Baptist churches in Tennessee. (laughs) And while I was waiting and cooling my heels and trying to find work, I got a call from an old friend in the nuclear disarmament community saying, would you be willing to work on an effort that's at the intersection of faith and disarmament? And that's where things went from there. Um, One thing led to another, and the Two Futures Project came into being as my effort to engage... Um, more conservative American evangelicals on nuclear disarmament, since these were communities that were not part of the kind of typical ban the bomb uh, religious coalitions, um, and to articulate a case for disarmament that made sense in the kind of vernacular language of American evangelicalism, which is where I had found my church home.
1: Thank you for that. Uh, just another question related to to your activism uh, work. Um, you've also done a lot of reflection on it. Uh, you are what kind of we have called in this context a re- reflexive, reflective practitioner. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> tell us about that and about the connection between that and, and your academic work.
2: Part of what I was trying to do uh, with the Two Futures Project was, as I said, to engage communities that weren't typically involved with the issue that I was involved with. And so that had me thinking at a kind of constant level um, at a that had me thinking relatively consistently. Um, what's required to engage communities like this? What does it mean to be making this case? Um, what's the what's the nature of of Christian activism? Um, and so, out of those experiences came um, came a book, uh, "The World Is Not Ours to Save," um, which I wrote reflecting on the experience of of doing this work because that work. Um, that, that anti-nuclear work, for me, occurred at a time that, in, in retrospect, was pretty rich in terms of um, Christian activism and advocacy on a whole host of issues, especially in an American context. And in the course of going around and talking about nuclear weapons, I would often find myself alongside um, you know, this or that conference, alongside people working on some other issue from a Christian perspective. And so it got me thinking about the nature of what it meant to be a Christian trying to, um, I hate the term, but change the world and what was involved in our motivations and our, and our practices, et cetera. So, um, I think it's been, it's been part and parcel for me, uh, reflecting on the, the nature of a- advocacy and activism, um, maybe put differently as, as you guys are dealing with here and your themes of, of resistance, thinking about the nature of that along with doing the work.
0: So now you're a few years kind of past that starting point and being in the middle of it, acting like being an activist in that way and like being among these communities and stuff. And I'm wondering maybe how your thinking on activism itself or even what you what you were doing specifically in those contexts has developed or changed over the years. And especially as you've kind of moved into a different line of work. Yeah, maybe how that's changed in that way.
2: Well, first, maybe just a a, a biographical note of how I wound up here from from where I was. So um, it's it's funny. I mean, none of us are abstract beings. We (laughs) exist in these um, in our lived contexts, And my lived context was that um, my wife finished her Ph.D. and then got an academic job teaching in Toronto. And so we moved here in 2011, and my work, which was deeply enmeshed in American politics, simply can't be done across borders. And so I had to shift gears. Um, but it was also for me, um, and I think in activist and scholarly communities, we often don't bring in our personal narratives, sort of what's happening on the ground, but but they really do define the way we work, um, what we're interested in, what we're pursuing. Um, for me, it was at a moment in my own life where I felt like I I had a closing window of, of of trying to commit to to one direction or another professionally. Did I want to stay in this activist work that I had really sort of stumbled into? Um, did I want to return to the pastoral calling that had been my original sense of vocation um, as a mid-20s person? Um, did I want to pursue an academic career, which had always sort of been on the the side for me? And so I applied and uh, enrolled in my, my doctoral program mostly as a respectable way of killing time while I, <laughs> while I kind of discerned um, those issues. It's a terrible reason to start a doctorate, and anybody who's listening who thinks that's a good idea should heed this advice. It is not a good reason to do it, but, <laughs> um, but it's what I did, and in the course of that, I did discern a call um, to... Um, back to pastoral ministry and that I also wanted to do that as an Anglican. So I, I'm now an ordained priest in the Anglican Church of Canada. And you mentioned I, I serve at a church here. I'm finishing the doctorate because I'm committed to that work. Um, uh, and I think it informs my my pastoral work. It informs my activist work. Um, but how all those three are going to finally come together is, is a different story. In the book, The World is Not Ours to Save, um, I'm trying to grapple with what I saw as the kind of unbridled optimism in the Christian activist community that surrounded me mm-hmm. uh, at the time of doing my nuclear work, the sense of if we really kind of get this stuff right, we can fix what's wrong with the world. Um, and the entire book is, is an argument um, that that kind of um, world saving is not within our capacities. Um, that it distorts our sense of ourselves, that it's grounded on a flawed view of God and God's work in history, and that there is a different way of understanding ourselves as agents of the kingdom of being. I, I, I use this phrase from Hebrews 11 of the the saints who welcomed at a distance the promises of God and thinking, well, what it means to welcome at a distance uh, the promises of the kingdom and, and how that transforms our present circumstances without the delusion that we are by our own efforts and through our own strength going to um, irreversibly change our present circumstances. Um, I in, in reflecting I mean I, I think this is this is common for for some authors at least if um, I wrote the book and then afterwards, figured out what was the heart that was driving it for me. And what the, the heart that was driving it for me was what it means to act and to engage in a world that remains tragic in its mm-hmm. character, um, where events transpire that cannot be reversed, where people die and are not brought back to life, um, where injustice happens and is not rectified and will never happen for those who have suffered the injustice, uh, on this side of the veil this side of the resurrection um so given that it's what does it mean to engage and work in a world um, without simply sacrificing um, those who have gone before those who have suffered injustice and using them as tools for this kind of unbridled futurity what does it mean to to work and to still show up while while this injustice continues to happen and can never be recovered so Mm -hmm. what i what i fundamentally see is the the tragic character of um of working in a in a fallen world i would stand by that um i mean i think that that conviction has maintained for me a couple things certainly some things have changed i think one one thing that has chastened me since the since the book um when the book came out and 2013, I think, um, has been kind of a growing cultural attention to questions of, uh, a privilege, especially racial privilege and economic privilege. I'm not saying that this has all come about in the past six years. I know it's a vibrant conversation before then, but I think it's really risen to the fore uh, in ways that it hasn't, or I'll just say for me, it has It has impinged upon me in a way that it had not uh, prior to this. Maybe that's um, to my discredit. Um, and I think that uh, one of the criticisms of the book um, that I received was you know, that it could be advocating a kind of quietism. Well, mm-hmm. the world's not ours to save. God's going to do it. So sit back, Jesus take the wheel, um, which was not at all my intention. My intention was how do we animate our efforts or how do we, how do we sustain efforts um, without uh, attaching our zeal for our efforts to the contingent outcome of them? Uh, what what's it mean to serve fidelity rather than efficacy? But I think that one of the things that goes unexamined or uh, certainly underexamined in the book would be my own racial and economic privilege in terms of at least having these issues at an arm's length. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are things that I that, that at least certainly my own nuclear work, it is possible that we will face a nuclear disaster that will impinge upon all of us. But at least for right now, my issue was I could choose to engage it or not, and my daily life would not be substantially different. That's obviously not the case for people uh, people, and peoples who are under the daily oppression of injustice. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a, there's a gap there that I did not deal with enough, at least in terms of acknowledging my own perspective. And if I were rewriting the book today, it would engage um, better with that, I would mm-hmm. hope. The other thing that has significantly changed since I wrote the book is is the climate. So I wrote this book in response to what I see, saw as a really, a really ambitious and optimistic climate. It was uh, an era in which American evangelicals, uh, the field was just littered with people trying to sort of write the man bites dog story of like, look, evangelical cares about blah 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 you know associated liber- typically liberal issue evangelical cares about nuclear weapons evangelical cares about climate change evangelical cares about etc cetera, etc cetera. and there was a real moment and that moment is gone way past the horizon in the rear view um, now I think the prevailing mood is is one of despair at least among the people that that, that I work with it's uh, we've got the rise of authoritarian regimes uh, human rights um, Violations to superlative degrees that are going, uh, that are being resisted, but that are not being reversed, that are not being undone uh, from the southern border of the United States to uh, Western China um, and, and everywhere in between. Um, uh, so I think there is the sense of, well, how do we show up in this climate? And I don't pretend to have an answer for that. Although my, my sort of starting point of the question is the world is tragic, we have to show up. We have to show up regardless of the efficacy of our outcomes, the efficacy of our efforts to, um, to create a certain outcome. And we do so out of love and, and faith. That remains the same, but I think the, the, the milieu that it speaks to has changed rather dramatically. And then uh, a third way in which, which this has changed is um, just in terms of the United States on a very practical level. I mean, when I was working, it was like the era of, you know, position sign-on letters and, you know, hey, sign this statement and, you know, so-and-so evangelical professor. Again, this kind of man-bites-dog story. And uh, without getting into the weeds of it, the overwhelming support of American evangelicals for Donald Trump um, has, in my view, completely changed the field of faith-based organizing in the United States. The kind of positioning work that could have been done before is, is no longer relevant at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's made the task of activism and advocacy a much more direct kind of resistance, rather than sort of a, a sense of, well... The normal state of affairs is kind of an okay playing field, and if we move the pieces right, we can we can achieve some desirable change within it. And I think that uh, I I don't know anybody who thinks that anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: Now um, I want to you know, bring you back to the reflection about um, you already mentioned here the the word vocation, and in your book you mentioned the word call as that can mo- mobilize in uh first mobilizing moment for 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 christians particularly. What do you see uh this call looking like in a world that as you describe is is not gonna be changed is a it's a tragic world is a uh it's a world uh, in some places is getting a lot worse um and yet we have the need to to advocate for transformation of that world, mm-hmm. uh, it's not that we that like you said we said it before. Um, the it, the transformation is contingent; it is up to God, but we are cooperating. We are doing something as uh, individuals, as and as a community. So, um, how do you first of all? How do you hear that call for yourself, and how do you articulate that call to those who work with you or those who you encounter on the way?
2: That's a good question. I think that my understanding, and I'm not going to argue it's authoritative, but this is the way I understand it, is that the the call of Christ is at once infinitely generic and infinitely individual. So the generic call is to Christ conformity, that we are all called toward the same center and that to those of us who follow him in obedience of faith, um, into baptism and into discipleship, There is this increased resemblance to the Lord that is the project of sanctification, um, and that that that's something that's not unique or special to any of us. That's none of us. God's special plan for our lives is that we look like Jesus. Um, But God's special plan for our lives, which is at once universal, has as many individual uh, versions and appearances of that, of itself, as there are each of us, because we are all called from a specific context. Um, And so in my view, that call to holiness, that call to love, that call to justice, I mean, all of these are of a a piece, infinitely related. That's going to call us from within our given context. And within our given context, there are going to be things that resist that. And it's those points of friction, uh, wherever wherever one finds themselves, that in being drawn toward the holiness, the love, the justice, the righteousness of Christ, wherever one finds oneself in a state of conflict, in one's own conflict, in one's own context, can rightly be named, this is the call on God in my community, for me in my community, that this is what I find myself uh, called to address, called to work. And so for different people, that's going to look extraordinarily different. Um, like I said, the book is not about, you know, sort of sitting back and imagining that the world, the world, when we say the world, but what we're really talking about is collective human activity, that collective human activity is going to just change just by us sitting back because the only way, of course it changes is when people change and when people do different things, but there's a way of doing that without falling into the trap of thinking that it becomes a system that we can manage. And that's, so that's in some sense, the kind of like... I think largely unexamined and a popular philosophical assumption that the book is operating against that if we just kind of if we just kind of create a better technocratic me- regime then the world's going to fall into place without uh, and to my view that ignores the uh, the work of sanctification which is, is is part and parcel of of the world getting better i wrote this book out of a specific context right i was i was doing advocacy work in this Specific context, an extremely privileged advocacy position. Uh, I'm I'm probably more better described as an advocate than an activist because I'm I don't think I've ever held a picket sign in my life. Um, this I've been to rallies, but primarily it's about trying to pull levers of power and figure out what's what's required to pull levers of power. It's a highly specific way of engaging in cultural change it's very specific to to my context it couldn't be further from a liberation theological context right of a base community um of the catholic worker community of of the people who are similarly committed to nuclear disarmament but show that commitment like the berrigans did and like uh, people and more recently people who are still doing this breaking into military facilities and throwing blood on the walls um, and saying uh, just bearing a prophetic witness to the immorality of nuclear weapons so far from be it for me to say that this is the way right um or that this is what calling means and uh, it's just that's that's my understanding based on where i've come from but i'm like all of us i'm thrown
1: what resonates with me what what inspired me of inspires me of your answer is that combination of the personal and the universal call and in in that way it it is very close to liberation theology mm. and it will work very well in the context of base communities because mm. it is a strange combination between kind of the multiplicity of voices that and, and personalities that populate the church and the unity that we are called to seek and to provide for those who come after us within our tradition. So I like that way of, of, of phrasing it, but then the question then, that I will have like as a follow-up to, to your comments is, a new system isn't the answer. Then it is the answer to kind of a perpetual uh, resistance that emerges and bubbles in different places or
2: um, what, what do you see it being long-term? Well, a new system isn't the answer, but also it kind of is. I mean, so I think it would be disingenuous and often was disingenuous to say, well, what we really need to do is change people's hearts, not laws. No, actually, you need to change laws. And um, and then the, a cultural change follows uh, imperfectly, as has been shown, um, not irreversibly, as has been shown. Uh, but a cultural change follows that changes what is possible and reasonable for people to believe and hold and ways of behavior, hopefully people's hearts, then you do the work within that. So what I'm committed to, or what I believe, would be the sense that there is, there is, nothing, there is nothing good that we can do that cannot be later taken and used for evil. So it's this irreversibility of progress that is, I think, a, a modern mythology. Um, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do better systems. Like there's, there's no, there's a way of taking what I would be trying to say. And, and I think totally chopping the legs out from underneath of it and saying, well, then, you know, it, if we're, we're not about creating better systems, it's not about doing uh, this or that pragmatic thing where we're about changing, you know, people on the inside. And, no, the the only way to change things is is through the imperfection of our earthly systems, whether they be macro or micro. That's going to be imperfect, um, but it's the only way you have to operate. So, as an anti-nuclear activist, I I want the abolition of nuclear weapons. I see them as being categorically immoral uh, at a political level of political philosophy. I think they are. I think they cannot be used legitimately as an instrument of state power because I think they cannot be used justly, and I think that a state cannot be constituted other than the fact that it operates under a mandate of justice. so I think that they they're a self-defeating instrument of state of state power. That said, I support treaties that just limit them right so I support treaties that just reduce their numbers even though it's it's not where I think we need to be need to be in the end I mean this is something that comes up a lot actually in in anti-nuclear, work um, because there are these kind of competing views or these competing philosophies of one that just thinks nuclear weapons are really dangerous and we need to come up with a system that manages that threat. And then there's another view, which would be mine, which thinks that they are very dangerous. We need to come up with a system that manages that threat, but also they're morally unacceptable. And so we have to pursue their abolition.
1: Now, just maybe returning to what you said at the beginning, um, what motivated you uh, writing the book, the question of what's required um, to engage communities. You, you told us already that there has been kind of a change over time in the, the situation in the world, what is happening in communities, especially in North America. Now, just from your kind of dream box, uh, one is required to engage communities, particularly Christian communities, evangelical communities
2: now? I don't know. I think it kind of remains to be seen. I think that we, and again, the, uh, there's no way of talking about this in, in a really decontextual way. So, you know, what's required to which Christian communities, what's engagement mean, toward, toward what end, that sort of thing. Our life is in Canada now. So, um, uh, I need to start making a pivot to what it means to be uh, a Christian here. I've still haven't engaged, um, haven't engaged Canada at a kind of macro level um, the same way I did the United States because I'm I'm not a citizen. I don't understand the politics the same way. So my engagement with communities here has been largely as a local pastor, um, and I, I don't have a generic answer of of what's required. And in some ways, I suppose I'd fall back on my my previous answer, which says you know, the the core question never really changes. The core question is, what does it mean in the place where God has put you to grow in love and justice and righteousness and holiness? What does it mean to love Jesus there? And that question stays the same regardless of the the context that that you're in. If you're in a climate where you are part of a community that holds tremendous political power, then I would argue that how you handle that political power, how you steward that, that power um, is going to be part and parcel of whatever call Jesus is exercising on your life. If you are a Christian in North Korea, I don't think you're calling us to change North Korea. I think you're calling us to stay alive and to uh, be f- be faithful and true to Jesus and to, to show the gospel as best you can, which actually might kill you in North Korea. So it's um, that's a that's a hard... That's a hard climate, but my point is there's no kind of activist imperative that I think is baked into being a Christian. It's all contextual. It's all contextual. That's why there's no there's no activist impulse in the letters of the New Testament, none at all, because there's no sense that this little group of, of people is going to overthrow the empire. Their call is to be faithful to Jesus. Fast forward to a position where Christians have a lot of cultural capital, it's disingenuous to say, "Well, we're going to be like the New Testament church. We're just going to be about living this Christian life and not account for what has historically transpired and doing mm-hmm. something constructive with that." So, uh, I'm dancing around your question. I, I I don't I don't have an answer except I think the the older I get, the the more sort of chastened my view is in terms of offering prescriptions in in situations like this. And say, I, I don't know how to answer that for anyone else other than to say what I think the question is. And in, in a sense, it's kind of like imagine you threw uh, you you had a handful of metal fragments and you scattered them over a, a forest floor or something and and then you held a giant magnet over it. Well, uh, if if the magnet is the the call of of Christ on our lives, each of those where wherever it's been thrown is going to encounter different paths of resistance and being drawn to it. There's no one path to what's calling it. There some might have to go through. A tremendous amount of resistance to to get it. Others, others might find themselves in a different place. But there's going to be those those vectors are all going to be as unique as as where um, where the individual who is the subject of the call uh, is is going to find themselves. So, as to what that means in in our current environment, I think I'm still figuring that out for myself, um, and I, I I don't have a a macro prescription for for the rest of North American Christendom.
0: And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy— the music we listen to, and so on. So, Hector, what's your pleasure?
1: My pleasure is Christmas music.
0: What kind of Christmas music?
1: <laughs> all of it? No, oh. not all of it. Um, actually, some of it I don't really care for, but um, I like classical Christmas music. Um, I, look, I like a, a lot of folk uh, Christmas music. Uh, well, Colombia where I'm from, is a place where uh, starting on December 7th, you only hear Christmas music in all radio stations. So Mm. um, I cannot do anything else but like Christmas music.
0: Okay. Top favorite Christmas song, or maybe two. Well, maybe let you have two. And least favorite Christmas song.
1: Okay, I'll start with my least favorite Christmas song um, slash hated Christmas song is... Jose Feliciano's Feliz Navidad, which is not a thing (laughs) in my country. It is a thing in Canada, and I am exposed to different versions of it in all radio stations here. So um, that gets inflicted on me uh, starting on October 31st because apparently (laughs) Christmas here starts on October 31st. That's true. And my favorite Christmas songs, I'll say top one is uh, Bach's uh, The Christmas Oratorio. I like fugues. You know that of me. <laughs> I so also like
0: fugues. So
1: Those are everywhere in Bach's <laughs> music. So
0: Two fuggy souls. <laughs> yeah, that's why
1: we <laughs> like each other. Um, and the second one is, um, is a carol. It's the angel's carol. So especially when it's sung by children.
0: The angel's carol. Which uh-huh. one is that one?
1: I am not going to say it <laughs> for you. So uh, just look it up. And that is a good version by Trinity Cambridge College Choir.
0: Okay. You have a theme here, actually, because last time wasn't your your pleasure snow. So you're just a, a winter lover.
1: I am a winter lover. That that makes me very happy about being in Canada. So.
0: Nice. Well, my pleasure is... A shared pleasure, a pleasure that we shared. We had, uh, we also shared it with uh, Ron Kuypers. We recently went to the AGO, which I talk about the AGO all the time. But they have an exhibit on now, I think until sometime in January, on uh, Peter Paul Rubens. And it's really, really good. It's amazing. Actually, they have a number of his portraits and things that I was very impressed by.
1: I love David and the lions.
0: Yes. So we hung out at the end of the exhibit looking at David and the lions for quite a while. There's also, he also has this massive painting of the Massacre of the Innocents, which is absolutely horrifying.
1: Very Christmassy.
0: Very Christmassy. It's true. But very good. Uh, Yeah. So the exhibit's just really well, well done. I have learned since going that the AGO had has an extensive collection of Rubens like sketches and they at the massacre of the innocents in particular, I think this is correct, uh, is part of their collection actually. And they had had it on loan to some gallery or museum in Denmark, I think for the last number of years with, uh, kind of an understanding that they would kind of return in kind and allow them like, Give them enough of the things that they had as well to put on an exhibit. And so now it's back and the exhibit has happened. So that's kind of cool.
1: Look at you and all your inner knowledge of the AGO.
0: Oh, someone else told me that. So I'm just well, repeating now, learned knowledge.
1: Well, now you have it. Now we all have it.
0: Now we all have it. But if you're in Toronto and sometime before middle of January, I think you should go check it out because it's very good. That's it for our show this week. We hope you'll stay tuned. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. You can follow my co-host as at acerof underscore Hector, And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR.
1: And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on the radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.